The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Chair Medical and Health Humanities here in Trinity, along with Professor Mary Cosgrove in German. Uh, we run these seminars linked with our clinical sites as they uh, wish, so we're linked up with Tala Hospital today. This is a major time saving, allows us to interlink, uh, otherwise, it'd be a three hour trek. Uh, delighted today to have Jonathan Lewis to talk to us about shared decision making. Uh, medical Humanities and Medical and Health Humanities is very broad area, everything from literature, cinema, film, through ethics, philosophy and medical history. Um, it'll be 30-35 minutes, then there'll be a brief discussion by Professor Brendan Kelly, who we're delighted to have here, who um, has been involved with the processes of implementing um, uh, the Assisted Decision Making uh, Act. And uh, this is clearly a rapidly evolving area of shared decision making. We're delighted to have a philosopher, Johnson's postdoctoral fellow in the um, ethics department in All Hallows. And if you'd like to fire ahead now, thanks. Right. Uh, hello. First of all, can anyone not hear me? <laughs> no, we're all good. Brilliant. Um, hello there uh, in the clinical sites on the realm of the hyperreal, as we say. Uh, this is a new experience for me. I've never had. Uh, delivered a talk to two places at the same time, so we'll see how it goes. Um, firstly, I'd like to thank Dares for the invite. Uh, it's a great opportunity to come down here to Trinity, uh, just down the road, as it were, from DCU, and chat to you today a little bit about shared decision-making. Uh, this has been a topic that I've been focusing on over the past couple of years. I've got a number of publications on it. Um, and I suppose the first question is, well, why am I discussing it? Well, Shared decision-making is probably the, the, one of the biggest paradigm shifts in clinical decision-making practice in the past 20 years. And it's been adopted around much of the developed world, uh, primarily pioneered in the US and the UK, but mainly the US, in the 1990s. And it's now become, for example, in the UK, the NHS's go-to model for clinical decision-making. And it was a bit of a surprise when I started working on shared decision-making a couple of years ago to find that, uh, at least in Ireland, the, the model of shared decision-making hasn't yet become policy. So I think with that insight, I wanted to raise a few um, ideas about, firstly, what um, shared decision-making is, why do we need it, when is it appropriate, and what are its limitations? So that's broadly going to be the focus of the next 30, 35 minutes. What is it? Why do we need it? When is it appropriate? And I'll, I'll give some uh, examples of cases um, as well. And then we'll have a, a more theoretical, ethico-legal discussion towards the end about its limitations. So I think maybe for some, especially over there at the clinical sites, what I'm going to discuss today may appear to be uh, too idealised, unrealistic, too demanding, and practically speaking, fraught with logistical problems. Um, 
However, the reason why it may appear thus is because the problems for which the model of SDM, as I'm going to refer to it, is seen to be the solution are normative problems, i.e. ethical and legal problems, requiring a specific model of decision-making with a specific structure and a specific set of requirements. Consequently, in order to understand shared decision-making, its nature, the reasons why it is perceived as being needed, as well as its limits and the limitations, we need to situate it in relation to these problems, these ethical, legal problems for which it is deemed to be the solution. Hence, the subtitle of the paper, Between Normative Theory and Clinical Practice. So, moving on, what is shared decision-making? Well, no decision about me without me. This is the NHS's key maxim for the shared decision-making agenda, which, like those adopted by the respective health services of Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, Switzerland and the US, aims to revise the traditional view of the physician as the primary decision-maker in clinical contexts. SDM is more than informing patients about their treatment alternatives. It also requires patients to assume a more active role in the decision-making process and a willingness on the part of the physician to involve their patients in decisions about their care. It also needs recognition from those same professionals that patients particularly those with lower levels of health literacy, for example, may need support to take, a uh, to take a more active role in their clinical decisions. And to be successful, it relies on fundamentally what is seen to be two sources of expertise. Firstly, the health professional, as an expert on the effectiveness, probable benefits and potential harms of treatment options. And secondly, the patient as an expert on themselves, their social and personal circumstances, attitudes to illness and risk, tolerances for pain and discomfort, long-term outlooks, and broader values and preferences. So, there is a certain amount of consensus regarding the essential conditions of shared decision-making practices. Specifically, and this is based on a, a systematic literature review that was conducted by McCool and Clayman in 2006, the general consensus is shared decision-making involves, on the one hand, physicians offering treatment options and describing probable benefits and potential harms. On the other hand, patients are required to communicate their values and preferences. Taking into account how these values and preferences fit with the available treatment options, physicians are required to present their recommendations. That's broadly what the consensus deems to be the structure of shared decision-making. leads us to the second question. Why is shared decision-making needed? So in order to make sense of why shared decision-making is perceived to be needed in clinical practice, we can look at developments in three areas of normative theory. And these three areas of normative theory are in medical ethics, legal scholarship, and case law. Now, shared decision-making is often positioned as a middle ground between paternalism, that's the idea physicians make the decisions, and informed choice, i.e. patients make the decisions. Though that way of categorising shared decision-making is confusing, 
as it isn't clear who in fact makes the decision in shared decision making contexts. Furthermore, there's considerable overlap between shared decision making and constructs with similar connotations. So we have, for example, in this slide, informed decision making, concordance, evidence-based patient choice, enhanced autonomy, mutual participation, etc. These are just some of the terms that broadly have proliferated the uh, shared decision-making literature and in certain ways are aligned to the shared decision-making culture, as it were. There is also a duality to the way shared decision-making has been positioned within the proliferation of all these definitions. For instance, it has been described as both a component of patient-centred care and an extension of patient-centred medicine. It has also been construed as the appropriate process for informed consent on the one hand and clearly distinguished from informed consent on the other. What unites the developments in all three areas of normative theory that will be discussed, as we've said, medical ethics, legal scholarship and common law, is that shared decision-making is perceived to be the answer to a singular question, namely, what kind of clinical decision-making model is required in order to respect patient autonomy? So this is the question for which uh, shared decision-making by its proponents since its conception in the 1990s have, uh, have engaged with. So turning to medical ethics. How has SDM de uh, developed in medical ethics? Well, situating decision making in relation to these debates in medical ethics, we see that it is considered to be a challenge, firstly, to the traditional view of the physician as a primary decision maker in clinical context. That's pretty simple. Not only that, but the model of informed consent has been criticised in medical ethics on the basis that it is perceived, firstly, to reduce the patient-physician relationship to that of client and technician. Such a relationship is considered to be another form of paternalism because it promotes preference and value neutrality on the part of the physician and limits their role to merely being a provider of information. In such circumstances, we have empirical evidence that shows that patients can end up, according to when adopting or when put into the practice of informed consent, can feel neglected and abandoned to make the decision without any help. Now, while ethical guidelines mandate informed consent, especially when a recommendation involving a potentially, uh, especially when there's a recommendation involving a potentially harmful intervention, shared decision making uh, goes several steps further, or at least considered to go several steps further. Beyond presenting the patient with facts about uh, with treatment interventions, including material risks, shared decision-making is a process whereby both doctor and patient consider available information about the medical problem in question, including treatment op and options and consequences, and then consider how these fit with the patient's preferences for health states and outcomes based on their values. For instance, individuals vary in their preferences for health states, tolerances for pain and discomfort, and long-term outlooks. This information, which is crucial to choosing a specific treatment approach, is known by the individual patient, but for epistemic reasons, could not be known by the physician without discussion. Shared decision-making, therefore, attempts to address the problems with both paternalism and informed consent. By doing so, and even though shared decision-making has received 
relatively limited attention in the bioethical literature. It has been suggested that it is both motivated and justified on the basis that it respects patient autonomy. So turning to the legal scholarship, one form of, as it were, patient freedom that has been extended over the past two decades is what we call, or what Isaiah Balloon called, greater negative freedom, part of what we label liberty. With regards to liberty, measures and principles have been developed to ensure or enhance patients' freedom from interference by others. This accords with what many understand as being million liberalism. It's the liberalism proposed by uh, John Stuart Mill. It recommends denying that doctor knows best, finding instead that each individual is best positioned to make clinical decisions where they concern them. This liberty is only extended to mentally competent individuals. Things like juvenility, uh, juvenility, lost my tongue, juvenility mm. mental impairment and factual ignorance all may bar a person from having privileged liberty at law. Thus we see that the requirement to respect a patient's consent operates, for example, if we look to the UK, which has adopted the shared decision-making paradigm. In UK law, uh, the respect of a patient's consent operates on the presumption that specifically adult patients, those over the age of 16, have mental capacity. Similarly, according to the Assisted Decision-Making Capacity Act 2015 here in Ireland, a patient is assumed to have capacity to make a medical decision whereby the conditions for capacity are, and I list these, understanding the information relevant to the decision, retaining that information long enough to make a voluntary choice, using or weighing that information as part of the process of making the decision, and communicating the decision. On the basis of such statutory approaches to liberty, legal scholars have argued that the way in which the law has imagined the doctor-patient interaction has remained largely constant. The doctor imparts to the patient a list of risks, which the patient then processes to make her decision. There is an assumption that if a doctor lists the risks inherent in a procedure and then allows the patient to make her own choice based on that information, her decision is rendered autonomous. This combination of autonomy and liberty may, at first, legal scholars acknowledge, be seen as logically harmonious. However, the fundamental flaw is that the provision of information will not, in itself, guarantee that an autonomous decision is made. It guarantees that a decision will be made, but it doesn't guarantee that an autonomous decision will be made. And it also only guarantees that the information has been passed from the doctor. As John Cogan and Jose Miola uh, have observed, the courts have confused autonomy and liberty and prioritised the latter while claiming to champion the former. And here's a quote from them. A bold reading of the statutory test for capacity suggests only that a patient need have the capacity to understand. But read alongside the developments of common law, a doctor cannot simply accept an apparent consent from a patient who has the capacity for understanding, if that consent is based on the patient's having made the decision in ignorance of important factors that would bear on the decision. While disclosure of relevant information is part of 
what Muriel and Kogan see as serving, serving autonomy. It is not in itself enough to ensure that the patient's decision is in fact autonomous. The combination of common law and statutory duties amount to some level of obligation to ensure understanding. In a given case, it cannot be acceptable simply to find, less still unquestionably to presume, that in principle the patient could understand and then dispense the facts and presume that they are understood. So, as legal scholars observe with regards to English medical law in particular, and this is another quote from Kogan and Miola, there is a concern not just for the capacity for reason, but also for the effective use of it. For example, English common law has developed the category of the vulnerable adult who meets the test for mental capacity, but is denied decision-making power in order that more rational decisions may be affected. What this shows is that when the statutory test for capacity is read in conjunction with established medical jurisprudence, there is some level of obligation to ensure that the patient has reasoned well. For legal scholars, therefore, autonomy in this sense is not a freedom to assert a claim right to receive a specific treatment. It's not liberty. Rather, it obtains in the function of reason. Such an approach places the focus of medical decision-making on the patient's own motivating attitudes, preferences and values, as well as the information with which they are provided by the physician. In other words, legal developments have seen the alignment of respect for patient autonomy with the principle of, as we say here, permitting individuals to effect changes in their lives in a manner that is consistent with the values, desires and motivations that they themselves would voluntarily endorse. This, at a legal scholarship level, disentanglement of liberty and autonomy demonstrates why something like shared decision-making is, uh, is needed if clinical decision-making is indeed to respect a patient's autonomy. Any model, or so that's argued, that does not require the pa patient to understand information provided by the physician and utilise such information for a process of what we call critical reflection that responds to their own motivations, desires, values, attitudes, preferences, cannot, in principle, respect the patient's autonomy. So that's the legal scholarship point of view. And I just have to say that's, a, that's just one view of why shared decision-making is needed. It's not, I'm not attempting to say that legal scholars in general make this claim. This is a specific uh, reason for why shared decision-making could be seen as necessary. Case law. Again, looking at the UK, and I do apologise for looking at the UK, it's just um, in, because it's adopted shared decision-making, it's an excellent environment to assess what shared decision-making means, its repercussions, etc. So in a sense, I'm drawing on a lot of resources developed for that specific uh, um, legislature and for that specific context. But actually, the more general themes and principles will indeed apply elsewhere. But... Taking, uh, looking at case law, we have um, a particular case, uh, I'm sure many of you know, have heard or know about it, the case of Montgomery versus Lanarkshire Health Board, 2015. Um, if we look at the ruling, many legal scholars have, and medical ethicists, bioethicists, have argued that this ruling in particular, along with a cohort of similar cases, 
has likely contributed to driving the shared decision-making agenda on the basis that it demonstrates the court's increased recognition of patients as decision-makers and expresses the new position according to which the purpose of law, so the theory of the law, is to protect patient autonomy. Okay. So precedents, <coughs> me, precedents established through common law for valid consent mean that people with capacity to make decisions about their care and treatment must be properly advised about their treatment options and the risks associated with each option so they can make informed decisions when giving or withholding consent to treatment. In Montgomery, the appellant, Nadine Montgomery, gave birth on the 1st of October 1999, and as a result of complications during delivery, her son was born with cerebral palsy. Montgomery sought damages against the doctor who was responsible for her care during pregnancy and labour, and the appeal to the Supreme Court focused, in particular, on the doctor's failure to disclose the risks and obtain informed consent from Montgomery. The Supreme Court found, and this is a quote from the judgment uh, by uh, Lady Hale, the doctor is therefore under a duty to take reasonable care to ensure that the patient is aware of any material risks involved in any recommended treatment and of any reasonable alternative or variant treatments. The test of materiality is whether, in the circumstances of the particular case, a reasonable person in the patient's position would be likely to attach significance to the risk, or the doctor is or should reasonably be aware that the particular patient would be likely to attach significance to it. Okay. So there are two implications of this judgment. Well, there are many implications of this judgment. I'm just focusing on two in particular. Uh, which are pertinent in the context of shared decision-making. The first, whether a risk is material or, or whether a risk is material is no longer determined according to the views of, and I quote Lady Hale, reason, uh, uh, views of a responsible body of medical men, but by the views of, quote, a reasonable person in the patient's position. So that's one implication. And second, although much of the focus in discussing the case has been on the disclosure of risk, quite rightly, an important aspect of the model of consent contained in the judgment is an awareness of values and of how values can vary between people. So in Montgomery, Lady Hale was very clear about this, in particular in section, um, fifth, sorry, section 115, and I'll just read out what she said there. Um, a patient is entitled to take into account her own values, her own assessment of the comparative merits of giving birth in the natural and traditional way, and of giving birth by caesarean section, whatever medical opinion may say, alongside the medical evaluation of the risks to herself and her baby. She may be prepared to place great value on giving birth in the natural way, and be prepared to take the risk to herself and her baby, which this entails. The medical profession must respect her choice unless she lacks the legal capacity to decide. So what do we see here? Well, recognition, what these three normative dimensions, uh, three dimensions of normativity illustrate is that recognition of the vulnerability of autonomy in healthcare contexts. 
has led to the inclusion of this idea of respect for autonomy as a key concern, one that has an intrinsic value that cannot be conflated, well, cannot be conflated with the idea of a patient's well-being. So autonomy and well-being, although in any realistic medical decision will need to be considered together, ultimately they're conceptually distinct and autonomy is privileged. So once we have situated shared decision-making in relation to these parallel developments in these three areas, we see why a number of commentators, and these are specifically proponents of shared decision-making, have suggested that shared decision-making is the right way to interpret the clini uh, clinician-patient relationship. So Glyn Alwyn and his co-authors, and I should say Glyn Alwyn, he's... Uh, essentially, literally the guy who wrote the book on shared decision-making. The first book on shared decision-making was authored by him. And he says, along with his co-authors for this particular paper, uh, that by encouraging patients to reflect on the benefits and harms of proposed treatments so that they communicate their preferences, shared decision-making respects patient autonomy and promotes patient engagement. And a medical ethicist, Lisa Dive, in the American Journal of Bioethics, has argued that shared decision-making enhances uh, a patient's capacity to be autonomous precisely because it goes beyond mere communication of material risks and purported benefits. So, turning to the third section, when is shared decision-making appropriate? So, broadly speaking, Shared decision-making is most appropriately applied under conditions of what we call uncertainty. Now, uncertainty can arise when the decision is preference-sensitive, that is, when medical evidence and clinical expertise suggest that there's more than one medically reasonable option, and the choice of which option is best for a given patient depends on his or her values and preferences. However, and there's a caveat here, autonomy in the right to permit or refuse a treatment do not entitle the patient to insist on receiving a specific medical treatment regardless of the nature of that treatment. What this means is that shared decision making does not entitle the patient to choose clinical treatments that have no evidence base, for example, or that they are not made available by the local institutional health provider. Okay, so those are caveats to this, um, to this idea of preference sensitive decisions. In addition, when is it appropriate? Well, shared decision-making, especially in the past five, six years, has been particularly discussed in, with regards to the context of the family and the family's involvement. This has become a big area. And I apologise, I'm not focusing on the idea of the family today. I want to give more sort of a broader overview uh, of shared decision-making rather than uh, specific debates within that context. But I will mention that, firstly, involving the family is not, according to most uh, proponents of shared decision-making, a necessary condition. It's not, as it were, normatively demanded. It's not a requirement. However, some do argue uh, that failure to respect, uh, that, for example, certain treatments will require the sharedness of the decision-making process to be expanded. Um, if we take an example, say if an elderly patient decides that they want to remain in their own home to be cared for by their three sons and visiting care staff, then as the three sons effectively are being subjected to certain normative expectations, yeah, a patient will be required to respect their commitments and their reasons, their decisions. So, in a sense, what shared decision-making does is, just as it cannot force a patient uh, or coerce a patient or manipulate a patient to 
take responsibility for the needs of others. Similarly, when it comes to the family, under the shared decision-making model, certain proponents argue that if you are placing, if, uh, if you are, in effect, as a result of your decision, demanding a level of care from, in particular, family members, then they, too, if they're part of the treatment process, then they, too, should be involved uh, in the decision. And failure to do otherwise would be uh, a, a failure to respect their autonomy, which would render the model invalid because there is a disrespect of autonomy even with just the patient's family and not necessarily with the patient. So that's what I want to say about the family, but we can open that sort of that can of beans, as it were, uh, afterwards. So let's have a look at a couple of cases. Um, and these cases are from the literature and they're based on real life cases. Uh, the first one is by Alwyn Frosch and Thompson uh, in an article in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. Um, and it's a case involving Catherine, uh, who is age 67 and has recently been diagnosed with breast cancer. So this is the case as they described it. She was widowed, living alone in a rural location and did not drive. She was offered a choice between lumpectomy with radiotherapy uh, which is known as breast conservation surgery, or uh, mastectomy, and was told of the equal survival rates for the two procedures. She was surprised by this choice and became anxious. She listened to the advice, and although she was given good information by her physician, felt steered towards a lumpectomy and radiotherapy as the less invasive option. She became very tired during the radiotherapy and her breast became tender and much smaller, an effect that she did not anticipate. Two years later, a local recurrence of the breast cancer necessitated mastectomy. At this point, she became aware that there was a much higher rate of local recurrence after lump uh, lumpectomy. She felt regret and considered that her decision might have been different if she had been given more information and a chance to express her strong wish to avoid recurrence. So that's one example of the case. Second case. Um, goodness, where did I get this from? I can't recall. That's really bad of me. So I'm just going to read it out. Uh, and if anyone needs to know where this is from, I will find out for you. But I just haven't got the reference to hand. That's really bad. I'm not even citing appropriately. This is plagiarism. This is not plagiarism, but... Anyway, I will cite it, don't worry. Um, so we've got, the, uh, I, we've got Keith here. Uh, Keith is age 75 and has recently diagnosed with localised prostate cancer. Um, he was offered a radical prostatectomy as the most effective treatment and accepted the recommendation. Before surgery, he enjoyed an active sex life, which was important to him and to his wife. Um, but this was seriously affected by the surgery. He had been made aware that some men have sexual problems after surgery, but due to the anxiety he experienced at the time, he felt impelled to accept the recommendation without considering the full extent of this specific risk, and whether this was a vital concern both to him and to his wife. Looking back, 
He feels as if he had been given more chance to reflect on his preferences when in a better frame of mind, i.e. when he wasn't feeling as anxious as he was during the, the, the clinical visit, he may have postponed surgery in favour of active surveillance. And indeed, he would have liked it if his wife had also been involved in the decision, seeing as it impacted on her as well. So, well, in this case, that case is supported by things we do know uh, objectively about uh, instances of prostate cancer and prostate cancer diagnosis in men. Uh, we know, for example, that there are four uh, types of treatment or four options available for the management, I should say, not treatment, management of localised prostate cancer, including, oh, I, I put them here, uh, all management options are considered to be equally efficacious for most men for prevention of mortality. However, each option has its own set of unique consequences. As a result, there would be in any shared decision-making situation, or indeed in any informed environment, a, a large body of information that patients would need to process and evaluate. We know that. And we also know that important medical decisions, such as those about prostate cancer, can cause patients to experience anxiety and fear. Um, therefore, there is an expectation, or at least there may be an expectation, that prostate cancer patients may feel overwhelmed during uh, any treatment decision. We also know that radical prostatectomy is the option patients most regret. And we also know that higher levels of anxiety can cause men to seek out active and more invasive treatment options sooner than is ne uh, medically necessary. Okay. So these are just some, as it were, empirical facts that could support, uh, as well as uh, the subjective values and preferences of the patient being important, this could support, as well, leaning towards a shared decision-making model within such a context. So finally, um, I want to finish on, uh, and I will apologise, but I'll do my best to explain it as properly as I can, but this is more of a theoretical discussion. This is more of a, as I would call it, an ethico-legal discussion of the limits of shared decision-making. Recall that shared decision-making, as, as it was laid out at the beginning of this uh, paper, was uh, positioned as a solution to, a speci to specific normative problems, i.e. how do we respond to patient support autonomy. So in that sense, we're going to look at does, it, does shared decision-making do what it claims to do? Does it, in fact, respect patient autonomy? And there are three issues I want to draw uh, our attention to. So, bearing in mind that shared decision-making challenges the idea that the physician is the primary decision-maker, one might assume that it is a patient who is ultimately responsible for making the decision about treatment choices. However, the notion of shared decision-making confuses matters. Does it mean that the process leading up to the decision is shared with the physician making the final decision? Does it mean that the process leading up to the decision is shared with the patient making the final decision? Or does it just mean that the process leading up to the decision is in some way shared and that's it? Despite general agreement that shared decision-making is meant to respect patient autonomy, there is no consensus within the uh, shared decision-making literature about how this sharedness, as it were, of decision-making process relates to the culminating decision. The shared decision-making literature to date, which was systematically reviewed, I think, in 2017, most recently, 
has insufficiently distinguished between the process of involvement and the final decision or responsibility. Uh, so by contrast, others consider, for example, some proponents of shared decision-making consider the decision itself to be shared, consisting of mutual agreement between physician and patient. Other approaches are less obvious. Some state that patients should be supported to be involved in the decision-making process, and that's all. Others claim that shared decision-making is meant to aid patients in developing and communicating informed preferences, but make no mention of whose decision is the decision that ultimately this process culminates. Whereas others say that no, the right way to perceive shared decision-making is to say that a necessary condition of it is a voluntary patient decision, and only that will respect patient autonomy. So despite all this inconsistency and lack of consensus, there are, uh, and I've argued for this in a few, few of my papers, um, a couple of my papers, sorry, is that if shared decision-making is to respect autonomy, then it does matter who ultimately makes the decision about what treatment a patient will or will receive. And in most circumstances, if not all, if the patient is competent, it will have to be the patient's decision, purely to respect the patient's autonomy. Okay. But I won't back up that argument. Uh, I can provide you with details of um, the articles you can find that argument based in. Secondly, it is not transparent how shared decision-making is in fact related to autonomy. And in effect, if it can really do the job of respecting patient autonomy. First, as demonstrated earlier in the section on legal scholarship, what we saw is it depends on what we mean by autonomy and what we assume to be the ideal with respect to autonomy. Second, even if we accept a certain version of shared decision-making as a, and a certain view on autonomy, Recent research has in fact demonstrated that the conditions described in standard accounts of shared decision-making actually undermine, rather than respect, patient autonomy on a number of different conceptions of autonomy. For example, if we assume that by autonomy we mean a patient's capacity to, like we saw in the assisted decision-making capacity at 2015, this capacity to understand the information relevant to the decision, to retain that information long enough to make a voluntary choice, to use or weigh that information as part of the process of making the decision and to communicate their decision, then there is nothing in that description, in that way of, as it were, understanding the conditions of autonomy, nothing to distinguish shared decision-making from the model of informed consent, since on this approach a patient's autonomy can be respected by either model of clinical decision-making so long as the patient is able to satisfy these conditions. It follows if we believe that shared decision-making requires the patient to decide what treatment they will or will not receive and that they be allowed to make their decision before, as it were, the physician decides for them, then this sort of, as it were, normative requirement or ethical requirement, if it's a better way of putting it, cannot be ca uh, fully captured by the principle of respect for a patient's autonomy understood as this capacity. Furthermore, on the basis of competence alone, there is no autonomy-based reason for physicians to offer patients options, take into account their values, or obtain informed preferences in order to respect their autonomy. So what does it add? Alternatively, rather than conflate a patient's competence with autonomy, we might say that competency instead grounds an account of autonomy understood as a patient's sovereignty. Now this is a juristic approach, supported, uh, for example, in the UK by the tort of battery. 
So as we observed in relation earlier to legal scholarship, this approach to autonomy reflects a patient's liberty, specifically their right to refuse or permit a particular treatment being offered. And as we saw earlier, the point here is that violations of a patient's sovereignty should not be confused with interferences with the ability for a patient to make a decision based on their own values and preferences. The sovereignty approach to autonomy concerns an individual's right to permit or refuse treatment. If violations of a patient's sovereignty are wrong, then they are so in the sense that they are considered to be, and this is quoting from English law, trespasses upon the body of that person without consent, as opposed to specific interferences that affect a patient's ability to make decisions based on their own values, motives, and desires. As this juristic conception of autonomy is grounded on the notion of mental capacity articulated in statutory law, then as we saw previously, things like being a child, mental impairment, and factual ignorance may all bar a person from having this privileged liberty. So let me explain by way of a quick... Uh, so, sorry, no, jump to section. What this shows is that where respect for sovereignty is exclusively concerned, as opposed to, say, the patient's best interests, a patient's right to permit or refuse specific treatments does not require a physician to describe the probable benefits and potential harms of the proposed treatments, nor does it require a physician to take into account a patient's values, according to standard accounts of shared decision making. Even though one might think that it is in the patient's best interest to have the physician present them with treatment options and recommendations that do take into account their own values, such requirements cannot be encapsulated by the principle of respect for a patient's autonomy understood as this sovereignty notion. So let me again, let, uh, jumping back, let me explain by way of an example. So in a case where a physician is aware that a patient does not want chemotherapy, having experienced side effects of nausea, vom vomiting, constipation and chronic fatigue, shared decision, -making, shared decision making would require the physician to provide information about the side effects of viable alternative treatments, even if the patient doesn't request it. The point is, however, that if shared decision-making requires a physician to disclose this sort of information in light of a patient's prior experiences, then the reasons for it cannot be captured by the principle of respectful autonomy understood as its capacity, as we saw in the Assisted Decision-Making Capacity Act, or as respectful autonomy as this sovereignty, liberty-based principle. For example, and again, going back to Kogan and Miola, they demonstrate that when it comes to case law, reasons for the disclosure of material risks and benefits have been dealt with by the law of negligence rather than the tort of battery. Yeah. So if we conceive of autonomy as a sovereignty, or along the lines of statutory tests for capacity, then a physician that attempted to fulfil all the conditions of shared decision-making would, in fact, undermine rather than respect, respect patient autonomy. Ultimately, and rather ironically, by not considering the ways in which um, considering the ways in which physicians' obligations contribute to and develop and impair a patient's autonomy, proponents of FCM have failed to adequately demonstrate that this model does, in fact, do what it claims to say it does. And I've argued this elsewhere that if shared decision making is to respect patient autonomy, then its proposals need, as a matter of urgency to revise the requirements of shared decision-making to ensure consistency with a single approach to autonomy, which, as has been detailed um, previously, would be this 
approach to autonomy that's captured later in sort of legal scholarship, this idea of autonomy obtaining in reason. Yeah. Finally, during the period in which shared decision-making became policy for many developed nations, a parallel development concerns the global influence of certain international human rights conventions. So three decades after the adoption of the UN's Convention on the Rights of the Child, and 13 years since the adoption of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the associated human rights of children and persons with disabilities have gained hegemonic status in policy making. In the light of Article 12 of, and Article 3 and 12 of the CRPD, there's been a move to end forms of substituted decision-making and instead include children and those with cognitive impairments in decision-making where it concerns them. The problem is that because shared decision-making was perceived as the solution to the problem of how to respect patient autonomy in clinical decision-making contexts, standard accounts of shared decision-making assume, assume that the patients involved are able to have their autonomy respected. In other words, the patients involved in shared decision-making practices are assumed to be able to satisfy the conditions for autonomous decision-making. So despite calls for children and adults with cognitive impairments to be involved in clinical decisions by employing this model of shared decision-making, and we saw this uh, move. In the recent review in the UK of the Mental Health Act, there was a, uh, it was actually made explicit that the model being proposed to be used with children and uh, cognitively impaired adults was, in fact, shared decision making. The issue is that these two developments do not line up particularly well. Firstly, because shared decision making has been conceived as a model of clinical decision making that respects patient autonomy, Proponents have not been clear about whether, how, and what, for what reasons those whose capacity for autonomous decision-making is in question should be involved in the process. Secondly, the current statutory requirements for free and informed consent can not only emasculate or minimise the authority of cognitively impaired adults and young children, but conflict with the broader aims of shared decision-making. In short, because shared decision-making is so closely linked to the normative theoretic problem of how to respect a patient's autonomy, it cannot easily be squared with either the Convention on the Rights of the Child's focus on augmenting participation of children, or the CRPD's emphasis on respecting the freedom of a person with a disability to make their own choices. In that sense, whether, how and for what reasons shared decision making can be extended beyond those patients whose capacity is clearly not in question is a problem that has yet to be addressed. Thank you. Thanks. Well, thank you very much indeed. The hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next ten years. <laughs>